0: All right, this is Hebrews 2020, and we see Jesus. Today's title is going to be called Extreme Generality, and I'm going to explain what that means. It's going to be the theme of today. I think there was a movie once called Extreme Prejudice. Well, this is Extreme Generality, and it has to do with God's not extreme prejudice, but extreme impartiality so it's 176 it's we see Jesus it's Hebrews 2020 and we'll begin with prayer father we have the appeal to pray at all times and we are always on guard and ready to do that especially in spiritual warfare we also have The privilege of approaching the throne of grace, your throne is a throne of grace, a throne from which you dispense mercy and grace. And so we approach that throne of grace in order to lay hold of mercy and find grace to help in time of need, timely grace. The timely grace we need right now for this very time is the grace of the spirit of grace, to teach us what we're about to study so that we can appropriate it and so that we can all the more grasp and seize and hold the hope that is set before us, that hope being our Lord Jesus Christ himself. We thank you in his name. Amen. I've said more than once that Hebrews is not a dissertation on universal salvation. However, our commentary, at least on one level, is becoming such a dissertation. It's becoming part of an ongoing discourse (coughs) that we've had here in Tetelestai Phalanx on the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ, on the universal efficacy of his cross, which we call (coughs) UICC, the universal impact of the cross of Christ, And that theme can be discovered and read in our studies on Rev the Book, Better Call Paul, Romans the Epistle, Romans Doctrines, the Doctrine of Justification, Doing and Living Theology, and the Doctrine of the Mystery. It's coming into the sharpest possible focus in Hebrews, an unlikely place. The great archpriesthood of Jesus Christ is in our theological exegesis of Hebrews what we would call a Christological theme. It's also a soteriological theme or a theme having to do with salvation. For as Hebrews 7.25 says, this archpriest makes intercession for us to save us to the uttermost. Hebrews 7.25 again. Priesthood of Jesus speaks directly to his universally saving significance, and I want to say that again, because our topic is going to have largely to do with the priesthood of Jesus Christ in the next three chapters, or four chapters, seven, eight, nine, and ten. The priesthood of Jesus speaks directly to his universality of saving significance and to the universally or cosmic saving impact of the cross of Christ because as the man Christ Jesus is the sole mediator, S-O-L-E, mediator between God and all of humanity, so his priestly acts and ministry are for the benefit of all humanity. Jesus is the conveyance of God is salvation. I'll say that again. Jesus is the conveyance of God who is salvation to all the human race and to all the groaning creation. That's not a poem on purpose. That's just a statement. Jesus is the conveyance of God who is salvation to all the human race and to all the groaning creation. What is more, and there's always more, Jesus is the proper and obedient response of all the human race and all of creation to the God who is its salvation. When we see Jesus as a great archpriest according to the order of Melchizedek, we see the salvation of God for the entire race of humankind. And we see in Jesus Jesus The liberation of all of creation from its slavery to corruption and entropy. So I'm going to look over some verses again, review them, and see how they form a kind of a linear theme regarding this subject. Hebrews 2.9, we see Jesus. That's the theme phrase that I chose for this whole series, which is now... Over 900 pages and notes, I think, are prepared for it. But Hebrews 2.9 says, We see Jesus, who was made inferior to the angels for a little while, so that by the grace of God, and we saw the alternative translation to that, which I prefer, so that far from God, he would taste death for everyone. <clears throat> That's an extreme generality. Taste death death for everyone. That means experience death, which the Bible defines as the wages of sin for everyone, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. Down the line a little bit, Hebrews 2.17, it says, for the same reason, he was bound to become like his siblings in every way we know that he became like we are in every way except for sin, as we're going to learn, or as we learn down the line in Hebrews 4.15. He was bound to become like his siblings in every way in order to be a merciful and faithful archpriest in things pertaining to God, to make expiation or propitiation for the sins of The people, it doesn't say the sins of ignorance of the people of Israel, like the archpriest atoned for once a year in Yom Kippur. It does not say the sins of the people of Israel. There is an extreme generality here. When Jesus became an archpriest, It was to make expiation, propitiation for the sins, period, of all people. We saw that again in 1 John 2, 1 and 2, which becomes a very strong verse in this regard. Jesus Christ, the righteous one for us, is the propitiation for our sins, and not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. <clears throat> Again, in Hebrews 3.1, following this linear theme, Therefore, sanctified siblings, participants in a heavenly calling, carefully consider the apostle and archpriest of our confession. Our confession is what we acknowledge as ultimate reality, and that's Jesus. We're going to find out that ultimate reality and mercy are one thing. Ultimate reality and saving mercy are are one thing ultimate reality and the saving god are one person in Jesus 4:14 <clears throat> following the same linear line of the archpriesthood of Christ verse 14 therefore having a great archpriest who has passed through the heavens Jesus the son of god let's hold fast the confession for we do not have an archpriest who can't sympathize with our weaknesses but one who has been tested in every way as we are yet without sin. And then in one, we looked at this a little bit already, every archpriest selected from human beings is appointed to act on behalf of human beings in things that pertain to God to offer both gifts And sacrifices for sins. Now, the universality of Jesus' saving significance is palpable in all of these passages. It's obvious, it hits you in the face. In the suffering through which Jesus was perfected or completed in his vocation as our great archpriest, he experienced in the Gospels. It means he drank to the dregs the cup of death. The wages of sin is what it is in Romans 6.23. For everyone, that's extreme generality. After enduring that which Jesus endured on the cross for everyone, he didn't pass from the outer to the inner sections of a man-made earthly tent like the Levitical archpriest did. Once a year, the archpriest only, not just the priest who offered daily sacrifices, the archpriest would enter behind the second curtain of the man-made tent, and he would present the blood of the lamb. Then he would come out and appear a second time to the people, and that we find that analogy in Hebrews 9.28. That he appeared a second time to the people means that he didn't, die in the Holy of Holies but that his sacrifice for the people for one more year was accepted But contrary to this great archpriest the priest of the Old Testament the archpriest went in once a year Jesus went in once and for all the high priest went in goes in once for all in Yom Kippur the day of atonement for the sins of ignorance Jesus went in once and for all, for all sins. The archpriest of the old covenant goes in once a year with the offerings other than himself, animal offerings having been offered. And he does so for his own sins and for the sins of the people of Israel. Jesus went in after the offering of himself and through his own blood and found eternal redemption for all all of humanity, for all of time. We're going to see all these things come out in a wonderful depiction of the similarity and dissimilarity of Jesus with the Levitical priests. That's what this writer is all about. And so after enduring that which Jesus endured on the cross for everyone, he didn't pass from the outer to the intersections of a man-made earthly tent Like the Levitical archpriest, no. He passed from the earth through the heavens into the heavenly holy of holies beyond the second curtain of the heavenly tent that is not of this creation. I don't know if you know it or not, but in Hebrews 6.20, we just passed in our study of Hebrews into the second curtain, past the second curtain. We're past the second curtain in Hebrews. We're in a region that we haven't been in before. And we're going to be discovering some things that we've never discovered, not in Revelation, not in Romans, not in Paul, not in John, nowhere. And so, once again, Jesus passed from the earth through the heavens into the heavenly holy of holies beyond the second curtain of the heavenly tent that is not of this creation, Paul makes it very clear here that when Jesus came down and descended to the lowest parts of the earth and then went all the way up to the highest heights of heaven, he did so in order to fill up everything with himself. There's extreme generality in that. That means that one day all of the new creation will be comprised of him himself. And that's why there'll never be another entry of or insurgence of evil into the new creation because the new creation will be comprised of one who does not sin and will will not sin and cannot sin. So, he did not pass through the earthly precincts of an earthly man-made tabernacle as a son of Aaron, or of Levi. No, Jesus passed through the heavens as the son of God. He is the same son whom God, quote, appointed to be heir of all things. See the extreme generality, the radical universality of that. He was appointed heir of all things through whom God made the universe who is the visible radiance of God's glory and the exact visible self-representation of God's invisible reality, who also upholds the universe and carries everything that happens in it through the course of all time toward a redemptive objective, and he has made purification for sins. That's Hebrews 1, 2b to 3, where all those things are found. <clears throat> Even there, he has made purification for sins, has extreme generality connected to it. It doesn't say like the Old Testament priests, he made purification <clears throat> for his own sins first, and then for the sins of the people, and then for only the sins of ignorance committed by the people over the course of a year. No. No. He made purification for sins, period, once and for all and forever, and for the sins of the whole world. So once again, Hebrews isn't a dissertation on universal salvation, but our commentary on it is it has to be because we're, we're deriving insights from these things. Whether the author intended them or not, whether the PT intended these insights or not, I'll tell you this, the Holy Spirit intends them. So in the leading complex sentence, which is called the Exordium of Hebrews, that's 1, 1 to 4, it doesn't say that the Son, in whom God spoke definitively and with finality in these last days, made purification for his own sins and for the sins of the people of Israel, and did so year after year on the Day of Atonement in the manner of the archpriests of the Levitical order. No, that's not what he says. The exordium is a statement that includes the extreme generality, which we call universality. For it says that this son, quote, made purification for sins, period. Now, the reason I keep emphasizing that is because that's thematic. That's the theme that's all through Hebrews 9 and 10 which is coming up. We would infer from this that what is meant is all sins when he made purification for sins. And our in, our inferring of that wouldn't be incorrect. Because once again, if we were to read 1 John 2, 1 to 2, there it says, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, and this is going to be prominent in our next study, our next increment, who is referred to 22 times in the same epistle. One epistle, 1 John, 22 times Jesus is called the Son of God or the Son. So in John, 1 John one, 2, 1 and 2, where Jesus Christ, the righteous one, who's referred to 22 times in the same epistle as God's Son. That's as many letters are in the Hebrew alphabet. That's as many sections are, as are in Psalm 119, each section identified by a letter of the Hebrew alphabet just as there are 22 I ams when Jesus says I am 22 times in the Gospel of John there are 22 references to Jesus as God's Son in that same epistle God's Son is an expiation or purification not only for our sins but for the sins of the whole world so is it wrong to say Or absolutely right to say, when he made purification for sins, he made purification for the sins of the whole world. I think it's right to say that. And so this extreme generality also radiates in Hebrews 9.26b, which says, but now, once for all, at the juncture of the ages, the cross is the juncture of the ages, He was revealed in the putting away of sin by the sacrifice of himself. And couple that 926B with 928A where it says, Christ was offered once for all, once for all, to bear the sins of many. And this is a reference to, there's an allusion here to Isaiah 53, 12, where it says he bears the sins of many. There's a radical generality in both of these statements, though, that Christ put away sin itself. means that he removed sin itself and all sinfulness and all sins from the cosmos. As made clear in John 1, 29, where... John the baptizer said of Jesus, look, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the cosmos. On top of that, and we've shown this in many different ways, every which way we can, on top of that, when it says that Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many, this word many, which in various forms comes from the Greek word polus, where we get our word poly, P-O-L-E meaning many, a prefix meaning many. Paulus comes from its usage in Isaiah 53, 11, where God spoke in the prophet Isaiah and said that God's servant, my servant, my righteous one, he says, this lamb in Isaiah 53, 7, through his ordeal. And experience of extreme pain and sacrifice, he makes the many, Paulus. He makes the many righteous. But again, in Hebrews fifty three, or make that Isaiah fifty three twelve, which is alluded here to in Isaiah, or Hebrews rather nine twenty eight. In Isaiah fifty three twelve, he says that he bore the sin of many. Again, Paulus. Now somebody may say, yes, okay, he bore the sin of many. And here comes the objector. Yes, but many does not denote an extreme generality, only a great number, a high percentage, we might say. However, this objection would be well taken in many instances of the word many in everyday conversation. Many people came to my party, someone might say. That doesn't mean the whole world came to your party, obviously, so that sense is correct in most conversations today. But in reply to this objection, we would say that Paul uses the word many while also alluding to Isaiah 53, 11 and 12, and he equates many with all in Romans five eighteen to 19, for example. If you read that carefully, you'll see that. And we dealt with that very strongly in our study of reading Romans with the light on and then reading and then Romans doctrines, the doctrine of justification, a 10-part series, all of which is on the website, all of which is in video and audio and in print. So this is something that we demonstrated systematically in our study of Romans, that many equals all. When Isaiah 53, 11 says that my righteous one, remember that word righteous, through his experience of great suffering and death justifies many. Paul interprets this to mean that the righteous one whom he names as Jesus Christ and him crucified justifies and gives life to all in Romans 5:18 that is the same all who sinned in Romans 3:23 to 24 and in Romans 5:12 and 5:18 in Romans 3:23 all sinned in Romans 3:24 being justified by the redemption that's in Christ Jesus justified by grace through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus Who is justified? The all who sinned. Same thing happens in Romans 5.12 and 12.18 together. Romans 5.12, all sinned. Sin passed into the cosmos through the one man Adam, for all sinned. And then in verse 18, it talks about all being justified. In verse 19, many being made righteous. And still again, we illustrated this more than once. When Jesus himself spoke of offering his life as a ransom for many in Matthew twenty twenty-eight, Paul again interprets that as the ransom of all, the ransom of the man Christ Jesus himself being the ransom price. That's the Greek word autu in 1 Timothy 2, 5, and 6. And in Hebrews 9.25 and 26. So again, when Jesus said, I give my life as a ransom for many, the Son of Man gives his life as a ransom for many. Paul interprets that many as being all in 1 Timothy 2.6. So in accordance with the will of God our Savior, the God who saves and wills the salvation of all of humanity in 1 Timothy 2.4 and also 2 3 and 4 God is called the God of salvation in Psalm 68:20 and that's going to be a key and pivotal verse in this study too Psalm 68:20 our God is a God who saves there is no god but the god who saves there is no god but the god who is for us god and the god who saves is one god there isn't god and then the god who saves There isn't God who damns and then God who saves. There's God who saves, period, over and out. There isn't God who's for us some of the times and against us some of the times. There isn't God that's for us, elite, elect ones, but against the rest of the human race. No, there is God who is for us all. For he did not spare his only son, but freely handed him over on behalf of us all. Romans 8, 32. And still again there is the blood of the new and everlasting covenant that Hebrews 12:24 and 13:20 speaks of. This covenant which Jesus said is ratified by my blood which is shed for many. Matthew 26:28. Jesus shed blood is for all. For the sins of the entirety of humanity, 1 John 2 1 and 2, and there is no God except God for us. So there is no God except for the God who saves. More than that, as there is no God except for God for us all, so there is no God except for God who saves all. This is theology. The very God that we call God, the true God, is the God who saves all. If you say, no, my God doesn't save all, then your God isn't God. That's not the God of the Bible. If you say, Jesus saves some and loses others, then you're, you have another Jesus in the chamber of your imagery. It's an idol. So I'm going to repeat the last section one more time. Paul interprets the many of Isaiah 53 and the ransom for many in Matthew 20, 28 as the ransom of the man Christ Jesus himself for all of humanity. And that's in accordance with, in agreement with, in fulfillment of, of the will of God our Savior, as he's called in 1 Timothy 2.3, who saves in Isaiah 53.12 and Psalm 68.20. The God who saves and who wills the salvation of all of humanity. He doesn't just desire it or want it. He wills it and fulfills it. So Jesus shed blood... Is for all. It's for the sins of the entirety of humanity. So here's my principles. Several principles. As there is no God. Except for God for us. Romans 8.31 As there is no God except God for us. Neither is there any God. Except for the God who saves. Isaiah Make, make that Psalm 6820 says it. Our God is a God who saves. Our God is a God who saves. So more than that, building on that, building on those two declarations, there is no God except for God for us all. God for all of humanity and for all of creation and even for all of the angels. He's for us all. So there is no God except for God who saves all. Now here we've hit with the tip of the spear, the heart of the matter. We've driven the tip of the spear into the heart of the matter of universal salvation, not playing around anymore. This is the theological rationale for the all-saving God and for universal salvation, which can't be separated from the universally saving significance of Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. Here, there, and everywhere. Yes, it's a Beatles song, but here, there, and everywhere in Scripture, an extremely general, let's call it, well, we already did, extreme generality, Here, there, and everywhere in Scripture, an an extreme generality is spoken of with regard to Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and his saving work and significance and his saving ministry in in Hebrews 7.25. Extreme generality is universality. Take generality to its extreme, you have universality. This radical generality radiates throughout Hebrews. Jesus, the Son of God, is, again, the visible radiance of the glory of our God who is a God who saves. See how that builds doctrine upon doctrine, line upon line, here here a little, there a little? It, It builds a doctrine. Jesus, the Son of God, As the visible radiance of the glory of God is the visible radiance of our God who saves just as it is impossible to separate the reality capital R of God from God for us God hyphen for hyphen us just as it is impossible to separate the reality of God from God for us so it is also impossible to speak of the one true God apart from the God who saves. The God who saves chooses to save through the through the mediation of one to whom he has said, "You are my son." And you are a priest forever as typified in Melchizedek. Notice how I translated that, as typified in Melchizedek. As we could say, prefigured in Melchizedek. All of this is going to be like a highway going into Hebrews 7.1. It's going to help interpret Hebrews 7 more than you can imagine. Now, when it says that Jesus ever lives to make intercession for us as an archpriest forever after the order of Melchizedek, as we'll see in Hebrews 7, the picture sometimes comes into mind, and this is a picture that I want to dispel, take down. When it says that Jesus ever lives to make intercession for us as an archpriest forever after the order of Melchizedek, as we see it in Hebrews 7, the pictures sometimes come into the mind, into our mind, of Jesus pleading with the Father every time one of us sins. As if he has to say, please forgive him, Father, or please forgive her, Abba. I died for that sin. He'd be talking a lot to God the Father if he had to do that for every sin committed by every person in the universe every day that's not the case though he doesn't do that when Jesus interceded for his crucifiers he was arguably interceding for all sinners when he petitioned the father and said father forgive them for they don't know what they're doing Luke twenty-three thirty-four. now somebody will say see he only forgives the sins of ignorance those sins that people don't know what they're doing when they do them no this does not apply only to those who sin in ignorance because in all get this principle down in all sinning in all acts of sin human beings and all have sinned human beings don't understand the magnitude of our offense whenever we sin we don't have no we have no idea of the magnitude of the offense we're committing And because we don't understand the magnitude of sin, we remain ignorant of the magnitude of God's forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness that comes about solely through the blood of Jesus, his son, which we can never overestimate the value of. So when we consider Jesus as living to intercede for us, in Hebrews 7:25, we should not be thinking of him appealing to the Father for our every sin and fault. Rather, we should consider that His very presence before the majesty, his Father, is an everlasting and effective advocacy for all of humankind, just his being there for us. This can be verified again in 1 John two one. I keep referring to it, which says that Jesus Christ, the righteous one, is the propitiation slash expiation for our sins and for the sins of the entire world. That says to me, and I think it says plainly, Jesus the Christ, the righteous one, exists in the presence of God the Father as that eternally and universally efficacious expiatory sacrifice. Unlike the priests of the Aaronic order who could not stand to minister before the face of the cloud in 1 Kings eight ten to 12, this priest, as he's called in Hebrews ten twelve, this priest, having offered one unrepeatable and perpetually efficacious sacrifice for sins, and that's the Greek phrase that I've put next to our number today, our increment number today, sat down at the right hand of God. Hebrews ten twelve. He sat down because it was finished. Now, what is perpetually efficacious is also universally efficacious because as Jesus sits in the heavens on the throne of his Father, he waits for his enemies to be made a footrest for his feet. Hebrews 10.13 His enemies are all to be submitted to him, therefore, And as we've demonstrated recently, this submission is salvation. The last enemy is death. Death doesn't submit to Jesus Christ. Death is annihilated. You want to know what's thrown into the lake of fire, the second death, to be no more? Death. The last enemy is death. That's the only name that's not found in the Lamb's Book of Life. God didn't create death, didn't make death. He only annihilated death. Death does not submit. It's the last enemy, yes, but it doesn't submit. It's annihilated. 1 Corinthians 15, 26 makes it clear. Revelation 20, 14 to 15 makes it poetically clear. This, too, denotes an extreme generality all that has been affected by death will be liberated from death just as all of humanity are justified and given life through this one arch priest, Jesus. So in closing, this message has been dealing with the radical reality of extreme generality. It has been about the universality of God's salvific action mediated through Jesus Christ, the archpriest forever according to the successionless order of Melchizedek. that we'll look at it in our next increment in a little more microscopic detail. In our next increment we'll get to the specifics and particulars regarding Jesus our great Archpriest, as we continue in exegesis of this homily, line upon line. You see, dealing with these lofty themes, we have not forgotten and we're weaving into the whole mix. Still, verse by verse, line upon line, even word by word, exegesis. Father, we thank you that you are none other than the God who saves and the God who is for us. May this truth find its way into the deepest parts Of our hearts. And as we end today, Father, we thank you for your constant and continual providence in which you uphold us and that you uphold to tell us thy phalanx and all of its members. And we pray for those who are in special need of your great mercy and compassion that you'll dispense it from the throne of grace on their behalf. And we ask, of course, in Jesus' name, that you'll do so. And we thank you for your ongoing provision that this ministry can continue and has continued now in these messages on Hebrews in which we have just completed the 176th increment. All is credited to your grace, Father, in Jesus' name.